Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at that last verse, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25, as we continue in our sermon series that we started last week entitled Christ-Centered Communities, Living Out the Gospel in Our Relationships. We believe here at Redeemer Church that our belief in the gospel should make a difference in our relationships and the way that we live out our relationships. We want Christ-centered communities. We want homes that reflect our belief in the gospel. We want marriages. We want our parenting. We want our relationships with our siblings uh, to be gospel-driven. We want our church community uh, to be different because of the go- our belief in the gospel in this place. We want our men's ministry, our women's ministry, our ministry to children and youth, our community groups, our discipleship groups. We want everything we do here to be Christ-centered and to be driven by the gospel. But in order to do that, we need to know what our job is. What is our role in making that happen? What is the the right job that we're to do in order to have Christ-centered communities in all these areas? And not only do we need to know the right job, we also need to be equipped with the right tools for the job. And it's so important for us to know what our role, what our job, what the right job is, because many times the work we try to do to have Christ-centered communities is not the right job because it's not the job that God calls us to do. At other times, we may be trying to do the right thing, we're trying to do the right job, but we're using the wrong tools for the job. So my prayer for our time together today It's been that we would learn from God's word the right job that we looked at last week that we will review this week, and that we'll learn to use the right tools for the job, and we'll look at the right tools today, because we want to do the right job using the right tools that God has designed for us to use in order to have Christ-centered communities. So let me pray for us, and we will dig into God's word, looking for that, being reminded of our job and learning about the right tools for the job. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have put us in community, that you put us in families, that you put us in this church family. And we want all of our relationships to be different because of our belief in the gospel, because of what you have done for us in the person and work of your son. Would you come now and teach us Would you show us from your word what our job is, what our role is in having Christ-centered communities? And would you show us the right tools for the job, the tools that we should be using? Help us to avoid those tools that we should avoid. Give us wisdom to know the difference. And I pray that you'd be willing to show us all this, even now, even in this place, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We view all of life here at Redeemer through the lens of the Scripture. And for us, that sort of shorthand, all of biblical history, we summarize with creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I think we've got a a slide on that. There it is right there. Um, And you see that that a good summary of the scripture we've learned is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's a good summary summary for all of biblical history, indeed all of human history. 
And it's very interesting when you think about this that the first two chapters of the Bible are the only place and the last two chapters are the only place we get a view of what the world is like with no sin in it. The world as it was designed to be lived. Perfection. What God declared to be good. And the only places we see that are the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters. We'll talk about that as we go. But of course, we live life right here in the middle between those two bookends. We live after the fall and in the midst of redemption. So we want to think about that today and how this grid, looking at all the world through this grid, makes a difference in how we see community and how we see our relationships and what we see our role as and what tools we will want to use. So a little summary here as we lead up to Genesis 2 and verse 25. You'll recall in Genesis 1 and 2 we read there where God created all things out of nothing by the power of his word in the space of six days and all very good. That very last verse in Genesis chapter 1, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So there was relationship with God. There was relationship with another person because he made Adam and Eve. There was community. There was marriage. There was meaningful work that God gave the man to do in Genesis 2 and verse 15 that he was supposed to work and take care of the garden. There was great beauty to explore and when you get to the end of Genesis 2, there's something very significant there that I want you to see. I've done a lot of teaching on Genesis 2 and verse 24 about marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother, be united with his wife, the two will become one flesh. But not a whole lot of teaching on Genesis 2 and verse 25. Before the fall happens, the last thing we get in Genesis chapter 2, the last chapter where sin has not entered the world, we read this in Genesis 2 and verse 25. The man... And his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. There was no shame before sin entered the world. And this must be significant. It's the last thing that we're told. If you're a literary person, you may sense this is what they call foreshadowing, right? Shame's about to enter the world in Genesis 3. But before we get there, I just want you to think for a moment. I just want you to try to imagine. I asked Lisa to do this. She said, yeah, I can't imagine it. Try to imagine what it would be like to live in Eden, what it would be like to be fully exposed without feeling vulnerable, without that sense of shame. Can you imagine what it would be like to be fully exposed without any need for self-protection without any need for self-justification, without any need for self-explanation, to be fully seen, without fearing any critical judgments. Because in Eden there was nothing to criticize. There was nothing to judge. Everything was good. In Eden all was perfect and there was no shame. There was God's presence, there was satisfying work, there was beauty to explore, marriage, relationships, family, community with no shame. What happened? Because the world we live in is not that way. 
Well, of course, you know when you get to Genesis chapter 3, the fall happens. And we looked at Genesis 3 verses 1 through 7 last week. So by way of review, if you weren't here with us or you're like me and you just forget, Adam and Eve did not depend on God. And they assumed that they could make good decisions on their own, independent from God. And we saw last week that that, that is the essence of sin. Our belief that we can do things on our own, independent from God, and our refusal to depend on God. So the essence of sin is our refusal to depend on God and everything, and our assumption that we can do things on our own, independent from God. And we derive from that, I know I'm moving quickly, go back to hear the theological foundation, but from last week we said from that, our job in relationships, our role is to depend on God and to point others to depend on God. That we love and serve other people well by pointing them to depend on God. That that's our job, that's our role in Christ-centered communities. To depend on God and point others to dependence on God. And we had to confess last week that we often take up the wrong job, that we often take on the wrong role, that we often focus on unbiblical behavior in ourselves or in the community around us, whether it's our home or our church, and then we set out to apply pressure or to control behavior or do everything in our power to change those around us with the good intention that they will do what the Bible calls them to do. But we saw last week that that is not the job God has called us to do. That we have to learn the right job. And the right job for us is to depend on God and to call others to depend on God. And more specifically, we have to learn the difference between God's job and our job. It is God's job to change people's hearts. He's the only one who can. It's God's job to change people's hearts on the inside, which leads to changed behavior on the outside. And our job is to depend on God and to love and serve others by pointing them to dependence on God. And then last week we saw what happens when we fail to depend on God. When we assume that we can do it on our own, when we take up a role that we were never intended to have, beginning in Genesis 3 and verse 7 and following, we saw that shame entered the world as they realized they were naked and they covered themselves with fig leaves. Fear entered the world as they heard God coming and they hid. So hiding entered the world. Blame entered the world when uh, God says, Adam, what have you done? And Adam said, the woman that you gave me, so blame entered the world. The woman said, the serpent deceived me, so blame enters the world. Enmity or ill will, pain Decay and death entered the world. Death first for the animals that God skinned to make clothes for Adam and Eve. You can read about that in Genesis 3 and verse 21. And then ultimately death for Adam and for Eve and for every living thing just as God said that it would lead to death. But we saw last week that that is not the end of the story. That in Genesis 3 and verse 15 God promised a redeemer. And we looked at Galatians 4 and verse 4, where God sent a redeemer in the fullness of time so that we could be his children, that the whole purpose of the ministry and work of the Lord Jesus, his casting out of 
disease, showed his mastery over the fall and things that are broken, that his casting out demons showed his power over evil, that even his resurrection from the dead shows his mastery over even death and decay. Notice all the things that came into the world as a result of the fall, that God has begun this process of redemption, chiefly through the work of his son, but now continues in the life of the church, and we look forward to one day seeing restoration, that all things will be made new, that a day is coming when everything was good in the beginning, and it will be made good and all new again, that there's no curse, that all these things that came into the world as a result of the fall, shame, fear, blame, and the like, will be done away with when God restores all things and makes all things new. And we persevere in this day because we know that the day of restoration is coming. That is the good news of the gospel. The problem is that even as we live life between these two bookends, as we live life in here after the fall and in the midst of redemption, many of our communities in our home, in our church, in our neighborhoods, wherever it is you live, work, and play, in our relationships... Those things, even though we live on this side of the cross, for many of us, our relationships in our community are more characterized by these things that came into the world as a result of the fall. Shame, fear, blame, enmity, pain, and death. That that's more descriptive of our communities than redemption. And so we want to think about and talk about the fact That if we're going to be Christ-centered, if we're going to live out the gospel, then the gospel has to make a difference in the way that we do things. And we've gotten clarity on the right job. The right job for us is to depend on God and to love and serve others by pointing them to dependence on God. But what are the tools that we use to do this? And I use that term because I think that's where we go wrong. We We have the right intention, we have the right goal, but we use the wrong tools for the job. What are the right tools for the job? What tools would God want us to use? And I think a fair question to ask is, well, what tools does God use with his children? What tools does God use to create the communities that God creates? And when we begin to ask that question, I think we see these things that I've got listed here under redemption. Think about it. The world is broken. It's messed up. God doesn't just give up on his creation and tear it all up and start over again. He was motivated to make all things new. And what was it that motivated God? What was God's motivation for making all things new? Well, you may have heard John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So God was motivated by his love for his people and his love for his creation. That's what motivated him. And what tool does God use to change our hearts? What is it that God uses to take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh? It's his love. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. This is the sermon a couple of weeks ago on when I'm not feeling it. Remember we looked at this verse and we read, For the love of Christ controls us. 
I love that language in the ESV because we want to control people. We want to control their behavior. With a good goal, we want to have Christ-centered communities. We want them to do what the Bible says to do, but it's not our job to control. The Scripture says it's the love of Christ that controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. How does that work? Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. When we see that God was, out of his love, willing to give his one and only son, when we see that Jesus is willing to leave the perfection of heaven where he was worshipped and adored, to come here to be mistreated and misunderstood for us, for our sakes... It breaks our hearts. And as we sang this morning, we can't help but love him back, right? 1 John 4 and verse 19, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And when we see his love for us, it controls us. Paul, your translation would say it compels us. God uses love to change hearts and to change the world. Another thing God uses is his kindness. You heard it in the confession of sin that we did today when we looked at Romans 2 and verse 4. So kindness, that should be Romans 2 and verse 4. We read together, we heard read, do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness? Some translations are, 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 are more severe. They say, do you have contempt? Do you show contempt for the Lord's kindness? And his forbearance, his patience, some translations say his tolerance. Not knowing, watch this now, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Man, repentance, that's what we want. That's what we want our spouse to do when they're wrong, right? Repent. That's what we want our kids to do. That's what we want the men in our, our, in, our, in our men's studies to do and the people in our community groups and our discipleship groups. We want them to repent. We want them to turn from what's wrong and turn to what's right. Well, what is it that leads to repentance? Romans 2 and verse 4 says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Then we realize he's been so tolerant and patient and has been forbearing with me who's been the worst all my life, questioning him, questioning his judgment, not depending on him, not faithful to him. And I see his kindness blessing me despite those things, that it's God's kindness that leads us to turn from things that are wrong and to turn back to the living God. And so God uses love to control people, to control our hearts. He uses kindness to lead us to repentance. And what is it that teaches us to walk in God's ways? Well, he's given us his law, but what is it that gives us the, the want to? What gives us the want to to walk in God's ways? Well, you heard the assurance of pardon today. It's the grace of God. Titus 2, beginning in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It teaches us to. What is it? It's a pronoun. What's a pronoun? A pronoun replaces a noun to avoid repetition. What's the noun that it replaces? 
The grace of God. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age. It's the grace of God that teaches us. So look at what God, the tools that God uses in redemption, that he uses to create his community, that God uses in his family, are these tools right here, love and kindness and grace. It's what God uses. Now, here's the whole sermon. If I've lost you, just come back right now. This is the whole, there's one point in this sermon, it's this one right here, this point. Are you ready? Here's the question. Which better describes the communities that you're involved in? What more closely and more accurately describes your relationships with people? Are they more characterized by shame and fear and blame and these things that came into the world as a result of the fall? Or is your community and your relationship with people more characterized by these things that God uses to redeem his creation, love and kindness and grace? Which one are the tools that you tend to use in order to see our communities be more Christ-centered? Let me say a word about shame now. And 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 I'm picking on shame because the scripture highlighted that one, right? Genesis 2 and verse 25, before the fall came, it said, hey, listen, there was no shame. And then after the fall and sin enters the world, shame enters the world. So I want to talk about shame. And I want to be very clear what I'm talking about. Because it's easy to say, oh, no, in my relationships, in my marriage, my parenting, it's all, it's love, kindness, and grace. It's not shame, fear, and blame, is it? Let's talk about shame. When I say shame, I'm not talking about guilt for wrongdoing, okay? We should feel guilty when we do things that are wrong. In fact, one of the definitions, one of the characteristics of a psychopath is you don't feel guilt or remorse when you do things that are wrong, okay? So I'm not talking about guilt. We should all feel guilty when we do things that are wrong. I'm talking about something different than guilt, And I'm not talking about correction. For some of us, shame has been used so much to correct us that we see them as synonymous, and they're not. So I'm not talking about correction per se, right? We should correct things that are wrong. So don't hear me saying love, grace, and kindness means you never correct anybody. That is not what the Scripture is saying. That's not what God does. So when we say we don't want to be characterized by shame, what are we talking about? Shame goes farther than guilt. Shame goes farther than correction. It is one thing to correct what we do. It becomes shame when you attack who a person is, who they are, when you attack the person. So the distinction may sound like this. Correction. Here is what is wrong with what you did. What you did was wrong. Here is wrong with what you did. That's correction. Shame would say, what is wrong with you? 
You are broken. You are messed up. What kind of a person are you that you would do something like that? That's shame. Shame goes beyond pointing out something wrong with our actions to accusing you of being something wrong as a person. It's one thing to say that was a foolish act. That thing that you did was foolish. It's different to say you are a fool. That's shame. I heard a dad correcting his kids recently. And I understand that we get frustrated. But he said, how stupid can you be? Not what you did was dumb. We all do dumb things. How stupid can you? You are stupid. That's shame. Shame came into the world as a result of the fall. And we don't want to be driven by these things, shame and fear and blame and enmity and pain and decay and hiding That's not what we want to characterize our relationships in our community. Those are not the tools that we want to use to accomplish the goals we want to accomplish. We want to be people who handle our families the way God handles his family. We want to be people who establish communities like God established his community. We want to be people who treat our children the way God treats his children. And here's what he uses, love and kindness and grace. Now, I want to say a word about grace now as well. I, you know, I have preached grace for the last 14 years since I've been here. And as I talk to people about that and how grace plays out in their life, I have learned that a lot of times when I say grace, people think license. When I say grace, a lot of people think, oh, so you're just saying that I have to just let people do whatever they want to do with no correction or no consequences. That's what you mean by grace. Just let them go. Listen, that is not grace. Just letting people do whatever they want to do with no consequences, no correction, that's license. And and being in that state is the state of licentiousness. And the Bible condemns that. That is not grace. Titus 2 says that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Listen, grace does correct people. Grammar folks, be patient with me. I define pronoun for you so you can be happy, but I'm about to use a double negative. I know you hate that. But it helps us to communicate. Listen, it's not gracious not to tell people the right thing to do. We think by talking about God's law and what God says to people, say, oh, that's legalistic. That's more Well, it can be in its application. But God's law, correctly applied, is gracious. It's not legalistic and moralistic. God's law is setting out the right path, the safe path, the way life was designed to be lived. Life just goes better when we don't lie to each other. Life just, communities work better when we don't steal from each other. Relationships are more characterized by the gospel if we don't covet each other's things. Or if we're not unfaithful to our spouses. 
God's law correctly applied is gracious. It's not gracious not to tell people the safe path. Of course grace corrects people. Grace even involves consequences sometimes. God certainly, who's very gracious, certainly gives his children consequences. And it's not like he's ungracious to give consequences. I mean, anytime he gives us a consequence, it's not as bad as what we deserve. So even in his granting us and giving us consequences, read Hebrews 12, a lot of times it's not pleasant at the time. But even in his grace and his love, God gives consequences. So don't misunderstand what grace means or what shame means. Let me give you an illustration to help you hear the difference. What is the difference? What does it look like? What does it look like to be driven by shame, fear, and blame, or to be driven by love, kindness, and grace? What's it, we've been doing this with the Connecting the Dots series, and it seemed to work well. So let me give you a real-life example, okay? Real life. Something that happens every night if you've got kids in your home, the bedtime routine, right? So just imagine your family is gathered together, You've had this great family devotion. You've been in the Word and prayed together. And now you say, all right, it's time to go to bed. Go brush your teeth. All right? Go brush your teeth. And the kids scamper off, and they're all cute. they got, like, their footed pajamas on, and, you know, it's, everything's great, right? You're doing things the right way. Oh, we're a Christ-centered community. Oh, we're driven by the gospel. And two minutes later, you run into a child who's wandering around the house, and of course the question is what? Have you brushed your teeth? No, I haven't. Okay, please go brush your teeth, right? You hear something in the kitchen. You go in there about three or four minutes later, and there's a kid in the pantry getting a little Debbie or a cookie, and of course the question is what? Have you brushed your teeth? And it doesn't matter what they say. They're in trouble. If they say yes... Well, you're not supposed to be eating Little Debbie's after you brush your teeth. If they say no, well, you haven't done what I told you to do. They're in trouble either way. Have you brushed your teeth? No. Go brush your teeth. Have you brushed your teeth? Yes. Well, you've eaten a cookie. Go brush them again, right? Go brush your teeth. And, of course, you know what happened. About five minutes later, you hear the eruption up there. Oh, he touched me, he pushed me, he, she looked at me, she licked me, whatever, right? They're, you know, they want you to resolve this relational dispute. And because I don't really want to deal with your relational dispute, I'm going to ask the question so that I'm on the offensive and I'm setting the agenda. And so I ask, have you brushed your teeth? And of course the answer is no. And what do we say? What is wrong with you? I've told you three times to go brush your... How hard is that? It's not hard to figure out. Why can't you do what I tell you? Why can't you be like your sister? Why don't you do what I tell you to do? What's wrong with you? That's, that's shame. And if you stand up big and tall and kind of yell at them, it's probably also fear, right? You better be afraid and get in there and brush your teeth. I'm using shame, I'm using fear to motivate, right? Now, what does the same situation, and listen, I understand, we all lose our temper, we all get pushed to that point that we respond by our spouses, by our kids. What would it look like to take the same approach with love and grace and kindness? What would the difference, what would it be, how would it be different? 
Well, for me, because you generally are bigger than your kids, I would probably, you know, stoop down, get down on their level, maybe even where they're taller than you. And I would say, I had girls, I would say, girls, girls, come here. I mean, I'm feeling it inside. I want to scream, what's wrong with you, right? But I'm calming myself, and I call them over, and I get close to them, and I look them in the face, and I say, I love you. And I want what's best for you. And if you don't brush your teeth, you have sugar and plaque and stuff that you can look up online after you know, tomorrow or sometime quicker than I can. And it causes tooth decay. And your teeth turn black. And they fall out. And it's ugly. And it's painful. And I don't want you to go through that. So I'm asking you to brush your teeth. And it's the fourth time I've asked you. And God says, and he puts moms and dads in charge. Ephesians 6, when children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. And you haven't obeyed. And so there's going to have to be a consequence. Mom and I will talk about what that is while you go brush your teeth. Because I don't want to do it in anger, right? So you go brush your teeth and get in the bed. And then we'll come in there and we'll tell you what the consequence is. And I will deal with your relational dispute then. If you still, you know, if it's still a thing, we can talk about that then. But right now, I want you to go do what I ask you to do. Do you hear the difference? Both involve correction, right? Both may involve consequences. But one is this. Shame, fear, and blame. And one is this. It's love, kindness, and grace. Listen, I'll just be honest with you. I can be studying this stuff and getting ready to preach and still get over here in shame, fear, and blame. It is so ingrained in us. For some of us, we're not sure how to do correction without shame. For some of our kids, they've learned they don't even have to listen to us until we get over here in shame, fear, and blame. Oh, my. Let's just be honest about why we use shame, fear, and blame. Why do we go there? Yeah, we get mad, we lose our cool, but let's just be honest. It's effective, right? You can get them to brush their teeth if you shame them and scream at them and yell at them and scare them. I mean, you can. You can get some results that way. It's effective in controlling behavior. But keep in mind, number one, that's not our job to control behavior, our job's to depend on God to change people's hearts and point other people to dependence on God using love and grace and kindness. So controlling the behavior is not our job. And second of all, it only works in the short term. Listen, shame and fear, fear only works as long as you're bigger than they are. Okay? When they, they reach a day that they're not afraid of you anymore. And that's just with parenting. In marriage, what happens is we just get distant from each other. You may not have the yelling, but you avoid one another. You avoid the, the shame, the shaming. You avoid the blame. It's what happens in churches, right? People just don't want to be around you as much anymore. They don't want to be in a community group with you. They don't want to be in a D group with you. They don't want you to hold them accountable, 
And listen, I'm not equating accountability with this. Accountability can be done with love and kindness and grace. We just illustrated that. So don't go out of here and say, well, he hates accountability. I hate accountability that uses shame, fear, and blame. And I, but I want accountability that looks like love and kindness and grace in our shepherding, in our community groups, in our discipleship groups, in our marriages, in our parenting Listen, our goal is good. Our intentions are good. We want Christ-centered communities. We want our families and our friends to do the right things. But it's not our job to control their behavior. And it is wrong to use the tools that came into the world as a result of the fall to make people act the right way. If we want Christ-centered communities and we want to be gospel-driven, then the tool that we need to use is love and kindness and grace and depend on God to change people's heart. Here's the good news. God uses these things to change people. Christ's love is compelling to people. God's kindness leads us to repentance. God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodly. Do we believe those things? Or do we really believe we have to resort to shame, fear, and blame to get the short-term results that we desire in the moment that doesn't really change people's hearts but hurts our communities and relationships? Maybe you're here today and you've been using the wrong tools. You've been using shame and fear and blame and hiding and ill will when you should be using love and kindness and grace. If you are a note taker, you see our action items, same as last week. Number one, confess. If, if that's where you are, you need to confess to God. And I want you to hear that forgiveness is available for you. He has sent a redeemer, and the blood of Jesus covers your use of shame, fear, and blame in communities. There is forgiveness available. But not only you need to confess to God. We need to confess to one another. Certainly express your desire to have Christ-centered communities, but then confess that you've been using the wrong tools. You've been using shame and fear and blame and ill will when you should be using love and kindness. Just confess that. Have a conversation about that. It's the best thing you can do for your relationships in your community. Ask for help so that you can hear when you're doing one and when you're doing the other. So number one, we need to confess. Number two, we need to correct. We need to correct people who use the wrong tools. Now be careful. How are we going to correct them? Are we going to correct people who shame people by shaming the people who shame people? It's easy to do, right? I extend grace to everybody except those who don't extend grace. That's not the way it works. Let's not use shame and fear and blame on people who shame people. We're going to correct with love and kindness and grace. And say, I know your heart, and, and your heart is good, and you want this family, you want this community group to do the right things and to do what the Bible calls. I understand that. But we can't use these tools that came into the world as a result of the fall instead of using the tools that God uses with his family to establish his communities. Listen to this sermon with them. Invite them to hear this series. We're going to talk about these things more.
But some of us need to do some confessing. Some of us need to do some correcting. And for all of us, number three is commit. Let's commit to use the right tools of love and kindness and grace. Let's commit to correct one another when we veer into shame and fear and blame. Let's commit to use the tools that God uses in his, to establish his communities and in his family so we can avoid all the effects of the fall and we can see redemption take place in our relationships that we may have truly Christ-centered communities as we live out the gospel in our relationships. That's what it looks like. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, these things are hard. I pray for my own heart and for my friends I feel so convicted that I have made these mistakes. I pray that you would teach us. Father, you're so gracious and loving and kind. Show us the right way. You've shown us from your word. Correct us gently. Lead us in the right direction. Holy Spirit, grow your fruit in us that we would be people characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. We confess that we cannot create Christ-centered communities and we cannot live out the gospel in our relationships. We need you to come and work in this place. Help us to see your love for us even when we don't deserve it and I pray that that love would change our hearts. Father, help us to see your kindness and your patience your forbearance, your tolerance of our sin and our waywardness. And I just pray that your kindness would lead us to repentance. And that in your grace, you would teach us to say no to ungodliness, that we might live upright lives in this present age. Please come and do all this for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.